Welcome to Beyond the Labyrinth, one of several places where I, Alfred Reeves Vissen, and my co-beagler, Hannah Gratian, engage in the labyrinthine pursuit of questions and meaning. See what else we're up to, including a bookful bequest, a collection of Hannah's reflections on classic novels, a push of the pendulum, my fantasy novel, and Keeping It All the Year, a blog inspired by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, or subscribe to this podcast, all at thedalia.net. Today, we're going to nose around in a loosely gathered suite of ideas arising from Tim Powers' fantasy horror alternate history novel, The Stress of Her Regard, and one of the romantic poems that inspired it, Lamia, by John Keats. Powers' novel is a strange one, but then so is the poetry and the events that inspired it. Anna, can you tell us something about Lamia? Sure. Keats's Lamia comes out of a different mind world from ours different in two really important ways. The heavy emphasis of the 18th and 19th century education on classics meant that educated people of that era, like Shelley and Keats and Byron, characters in this book, were fluent in the writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans and in the Bible. And unlike us, they were quite comfortable with the language of metaphor. It's been said, Alfred, that Wordsworth could think an iambic pentameter. <laughs> so different, in that way, but also in the basic understanding of how the physical world works. These poets were writing in the midst of the industrial revolution, when a worldview that could entertain the supernatural and magic was being eclipsed, eclipsed by natural philosophy or science as we would call it. Science, as you can see for instance in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was both exciting and dangerous. And as Keats suggests in Lamia, threatens to rob life of its mystery and beauty. Writers of this period were absolutely convinced that this mystery and beauty was key to meaning in life. They called it the sublime, which Edmund Burke famously de defined as astonishment. And here's a quote from Burke, that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended with some degree of horror. According to Keats himself, Lamia is a retelling of the story of Manippus Lysias, from Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which Keats probably encountered in his medical studies. Lysias is the object of the passion of Lamia, only recently released from the form of a serpent by the god Hermes. The passion of Lysias and Lamia is ruined in the second part of the poem when at their weddings, the sage Apoll Apollonius reveals Lamia's true identity. One is impressed by the richness of the language, by the spectacular, Modern filmmakers must have learned something here. And by the ecstasy and loss, I can't help thinking that this poem is about the muse, the poetic inspiration. What do you think, Alfred? Is that the direction Tim Powers takes with his Lamia? I think it is, but it's so different. He, uh, Tim Powers is a contemporary novelist, um, lives and works in California. And he's won a string of awards for his fantasy writing but his approach to his craft is unusual, um, almost unique. His novels are usually based on actual historical people and events. He, he um, actually very intentionally searches the historical record for odd happenings, for gaps in chronology and the like. And he fills in those gaps with supernatural explanations. Um, there was a 2011 interview in The Guardian uh, with him in which he um, talks about this approach and he, he claims that this makes the fantastic easier for people to swallow, lessening the suspension of disbelief that is required of the reader. 
I think that's an assertion that, you know, maybe we can <clears throat> explore in this podcast. But for now, I think it's enough to say that the stress of her regard, which was published in eight, 1989, it fits this pattern perfectly. In the novel, the usual doings and the poetic brilliance of the poets Shelley, Keats, and Byron, Powers explains them by their involvement with a race of vampires, or Lamia, whom Powers traces not only to the Old Testament Nephilim, uh, which are which were the, the very it's a very 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 fleeting reference in Genesis uh, to the, the the race of giants who occupied the earth and and who had congress with um, with uh, the daughters of Adam or sorry the daughters of Eve, um, but he also traces it to the muses of Greek mythology. According to the plot, these vampires prey on humans, and in return for their loyalty, they provide not only sexual congress but artistic genius and intense jealousy that extends to the gruesome murder of anyone competing for the affection of the vampire's victim. So that's not very good for the family members, for instance, of the various poets. Powers interprets the odd events in the lives of these poets, and there were lots of odd events. I mean, you know, this is, he had sort of a lot of, a lot to work with here, but the odd events in their lives and their deaths, their odd deaths, at least in the case of Shelley, who, who drowns himself, um, to be efforts to resist the lure of the vampires. So, so he sort of goes through their, you know, sort of um, tempestuous doings and, 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 and explains them through, through this, this um, both being attracted to and repelled by the, the, these vampires. <clears throat> Given how odd their, their, you know, their lives were, I don't think Powers had to work very hard to follow his method, he, you know, it was easy to come up with a supernatural explanation for their for their doings. But I think absolutely, yeah, it 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 is it is about the the idea of the muse and 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 the poets need muses, and, and is there a price that they pay for that? Yes, indeed. I tell you, one thing that you brought up there that that interests me very much is this idea of world building and uh, suspension of disbelief, and what happens when you put it in the real world. Um, I, of course, come at this more from the perspective of the, the literature and the literary biography. And uh, I feel like he's kind of abused it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess I would also say that, that um, having for years understood that the biographies to have happened one way, for instance, Shelley, brought on much of his trouble himself it's true but he was he was a teenager and a brilliant teenager and a bit of a rebel and you know these things happen but I mean <laughs> I feel sorry for him and I feel like he he, he when when Mary Shelley made it with Frankenstein the poor guy I mean he couldn't do anything right and so you know it's sort of natural that he was tempted to have big experience sailing his boat and take some big risks because life had not treated him very kindly. So, I mean, I don't know if it was a suicide, but, and I don't think anybody knows whether it was a suicide or not, but, but certainly it's easy to, from the looking at it from the literary point of view to have a lot of respect for, for his struggle. And I think uh, maybe Tim Powers makes short work of it. And that makes it hard for me to believe to the, the whole fantasy, you know, that takes me right out of it. <laughs> well, that's, it's, that's interesting. I mean, because of the three poets that are really in this novel, Byron, Shelley, and Keats, um, I, I would argue Shelley is the biggest victim because according to the plot of the novel, Shelley is actually born. Uh, he, 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 he has no choice about the matter. He doesn't invite a vampire in as Byron does. 
um, Byron is portrayed as, you know, sort of, um, well, he's young too when it first happens to him, but, but he's the one of the three poets who has the longest, who, who, who sort of stays in this bizarre relationship with the vampire the longest, where Shelley is literally born into it and has no, has no real choice in the matter. And while he succumbs to it and, and, and you know, dips into the muse, so to speak, uh, he also very much, you know, works with the protagonist of the novel, the, the character named Michael Crawford, who is not a great, brilliant poet, who just happens to be a victim and gets to know the poets and ends up working with them to, to free, the, the, free them from the vampires. Um, but, but, you know, Kelly is in some way, excuse me, Shelley is in some ways a victim. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, Powers casts his, his death as a suicide in order to free himself and his family from the grip of these vampires. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's maybe a little more sympathetic, um, but yeah, the, the, the world building, um, you know, last time we talked about uh, William Morris and, and his sort of medieval um, fantasies, you know, his sort of trying to recreate, build a world through the recreation of, of medievalism. And, and, and powers, any fantasy author is, is engaged in world building of some, in some way. Right, um, right. But Powers' approach is, is very, very different. I mean, he's taking things that, again, that have actually happened and, and sort of, in your view, twisting them, you know, and turning them into something else. And, and I think that, you know, that's true. I mean, so it raises big questions about, um, you know, is, is, is this legitimate? Is it vandal? Is it vandal? Is it, uh, you know, vandalizing? Is it, um, you know, uh, uh, what's going on here. And I suspect, and it's my fault we're even talking about this, right? Because I've read a lot of Tim Powers. I, um, I enjoy his stuff. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's light. It, it, it's not, um, it, you know, it's sort of on the surface of the brain. And I think we were just talking about poetry and, and the romantics came up and I said, oh, well, there's this novel about the romantic poets and the vampires. And I hadn't read it in several years. And so, you know, went back and read it again, you know, and, and, and I, I, you know, I see your point. It, it is, it is, um, the less you know about the romantic poets, I think the better the novel works, maybe is the way to put it. That's probably a good statement. Yeah, I think, I think I would agree with that because the farther I get in this novel, um, the more I think it's an outrage, you know, it's just, <laughs> and, and not only that, but everything that I respect about these people, you know, seems, seems to be robbed of its, power you know i mean it's just like 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 the very fact that their muse is this monster and so it's it's not part of their humanity you know and that in itself is is shattering you know i mean there's no point to the poetry anymore once we know that is there well would it would it um would it be useful to give a very brief plot summary and then, and then, and then delve into that. Cause I think that's probably Please the simple question, the, the yeah. notion of the muse and, and the poetic muse and the way sort of powers is viewing it um, as opposed to the way maybe, you know, Keats is viewing it or one of the, one of the. Sure. I think you should do that for us, but also maybe um, as you, as you're telling us a quick summary of the novel, maybe also that idea that what, he, what that novel is actually doing is, making the metaphor literal maybe you can sort of show us how that's working as you talk through the summary okay. yeah okay yeah so the i mean i i think um i think power sort of occupies the space in the fantasy world that's closer to horror um you know there's all sorts of different types of fantasy 
work. And um, but you know, he's much closer to someone like Neil Gaiman uh, than he is to you know Tolkien or or you know. Um, and, and there's a big audience for that. I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking it. It's just, um, but um, the novel opens with it's told from the point of view of this character, Michael Crawford, who was an English doctor. And this is in the Regency period. It's about eight, 1815 or so. And this is sort of a tortured soul whose, whose wife died in a house fire and whose brother died, drowned when he was young. And, and, and he, he, he bears this guilt around with him about that, <clears throat> but he's about to get married. And um, he, he, you know, has the wedding ceremony and then he and his new wife spend the night in this, in and you know the sort of beginning you know the, the sort of night closes and then in the morning he wakes up and his you know he wakes up and he's there and he's awake and then there's blood all over the room and his his new wife has been horribly murdered in the room in the bed with him uh, and her body's been basically destroyed crushed and so he wakes up and is screaming and, and has no idea, you know, and then of course he's then accused of murder and, and, and runs and has to flee England. But a very important point here is that he has made this happen himself by well, misplacing the ring the night before un or the day yeah, before, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Before. Yeah. I mean, unwittingly he, he has, he's, un, you know, without realizing he has invited a vampire, a Lamia into his life and essentially taken this Lamia as his lover um, because he's the night before at his sort of bachelor gathering, he's out in, a, in the in, in the yard in a drunken state and and, and um, doesn't want to lose the, his, the wedding band, and so he puts it on the on the ring on, on the finger of a statue in the yard. Which, and again, this is where it gets really complicated. Is, Very complicated. <laughs> is the, the these creatures, the Nephilim? This is the part he's tracing. Powers is tracing it to the to the Hebrew Bible, to the Old Testament. Are are creatures of stone. Um, you know, he's sort of aligning them sort of with the, the, the stories about trolls, um, you know, the, ah, the trolls okay. are alive at night and during the day they turn to stone. I mean, that idea, he's, he's weaving. I mean, one of the, I, mean, I think one of the things that, that Powers is pretty, really good at is pulling in all kinds of things and sort of recasting it all so that it is part of a, a, a thing that works. So for you who are familiar with all this, it makes some kind of sense, but me reading it, trying to keep track of all this stuff all the way through it. I mean, it, it eventually just starts to feel like noise and blood. I think there might be a few too many threads. I mean, it's, I, I had Maybe to, so. you know, yeah, it's yeah. A few, too many threads. Maybe so. But that's sort of the idea. He has unwittedly invited this. And again, that, that, you know, and he's pulling on, that's also a, a, a mythical tradition, right? Is that vampires, the undead have to be invited in. But then once you invite them in, you can't get rid of them. And then, so that's part of what he's playing with too, right? So, so he's invited this vampire in unwittingly and the vampire takes him as, as a lover, but then is intensely jealous. So the vampire murders his wife yeah. and he has no idea what's going on. And so part of the first part of the novel is him like gradually learning what's happening. He meets Keats. Keats is also a, you know, in the same situation and Keats explains to him what's going on. He has to flee England. He ends up in Switzerland because the legend is that if he can get to a certain place in the Alps, high up in the Alps, um, there's a way to free free oneself from from vampires. You, you get high enough up where the where the composition of the stone changes, and I'm not even sure I completely follow all that. But when he arrives in Switzerland, of course, he meets Shelley and Byron, who are there at the famous time when when Mary Shelley comes up with the idea for Frankenstein. So then the rest of the novel essentially is a is a sort of his sort of journey with Keats and Byron 
trying to um, at the same time free themselves from the vampires, but yet at the same time fighting because they don't really want truly to be freed from the vampires because of this idea that it gives them a pr- pr- pretty amazing sex apparently, but also um, you know the, the muse and 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 even though Byron knows what's going on and wants to you know he hesitates you know because he's writing Don Juan during par- a big part of the the novel and, and he doesn't want to lose the gift to write Don Juan and um, and so, so it's, it is a, it is quite a long novel I think at one point you said it will never end um, uh, uh, many times actually I ended up <laughs> saying it will never end uh, you know um, I think it's it's worth noting here in my opinion that um, the relationship between Shelley and Byron is an interesting one. And I don't feel like powers, I think one of the things we lose here is the interesting relationship between them. Because of course, Byron is, um, he, he's a peer, you know, he, he has rank and he's rich, he has money he's rich, yeah. and he's been successful. He's already been successful. And so he's sort of an elder statesman to a degree, not like Coleridge, you know, I mean, the, the old guys are old. Byron's not that old. But, but he is above Shelley in almost every way. And Shelley is younger and completely unsuccessful and, and not practical about it. You know, whereas Bar- Byron, I think, is, mm. is he knows what he's doing. And Shelley's kind of reckless and out of control and, um, and, and really not successful and poor. And he has a wife and a child. And so those, those dynamics are pretty interesting when you read the biography, when you read about their interactions and, and part of what Shelley was going through sort of overshadowed by Byron and then by Mary when she has her success, which comes out of that night of telling ghost stories in Switzerland. They propose that everybody write a ghost story and what Mary writes, uh, Mary Shelley writes is Frankenstein, which again becomes way more successful than anything poor Percy Bysshe is ever able to produce in his lifetime. Yeah. And and then, then then he ends up drowning drowning in a in a in a boating accident, right? And um and and so so Powers recast that as a deliberate suicide to free himself from the Lamia, um and and this character Crawford helps him do it um, because he he has managed to free himself and and he helps uh, he helps Shelley you know to do so. Um, and you know, there's a lot of other plot twists and turns and whatnot, but that's roughly the plot. Many other. Yes. Many. <laughs> <laughs> so so that i mean i, I think that so the, the interesting part of this i think is is this notion of, of the muse and and um you know kind of what um what powers is doing it seems is is he's 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 making this, this idea of the poetic muse literal uh, you know it, it is it is this it is literally a serpent. It is literally this creature of, I mean, again, trying to put all this together. It's a creature of stone uh, from a race that dates back to be essentially pre, uh, you, know, you know, way to prehistory, to, you know, to the dawn of time, literally. And these creatures were apparently asleep and then they were, they were awakened um, as, as the way powers frames it 800 years ago. So somewhere around, um, you know, around the year thousand, they were awakened, uh, and, and and they've been preying on humans ever since. And so, the, the, sort of the, the plot of the novel becomes trying to rid the world of them again, and mm-hmm. and, and then they take on the form of, of serpents, but they also can take human form, quite seductive human form, and 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 you know, and apparently provide this inspiration. Um, Maybe we could bring Keats's Lamia in here because, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. I, 
when I read the poem, I certainly thought that it was really about the muse, about um, uh, very much what you're saying um, Powers was doing, except, you know, it's, 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 it's the metaphor. It's right. <laughs> so she's dangerous. Um, um, and she's also a serpent. Um, that's how the, when, when, when the poem starts, she is trapped in the form of a serp serpent. And one of, one of the wonderful things, if, 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 if you read the poem, one of the wonderful things is the language of Keats, which I have to admit, I hadn't read. It's been years since I read Keats. So she is circouchant. She is, <laughs> she is wound up in a circle lying on the ground mm -hmm. and, and trapped. She's trapped in the snake. Hermes frees her and then she goes and finds uh, the human that she loves, who is Lysias. And then she um, sort of captures him, kind of. And they live together in bliss yeah. until he decides they need to get married. And that messes the whole thing up because that exposes her, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Ap Apollonius sees what she is and um, he, I guess, represents science he 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 exposes her and everything is destroyed but um but in that but but she starts out as a snake hermes freezer and then she and lysias live in ecstasy um i don't think it's too specific about that but anyway i mean it's very much what you just meant many of the lines you just um mentioned right. are right there in the keats poem well, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, I think I think Powers is well known for doing a lot of reading. I mean, he 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 is a keen researcher, so no doubt he. I mean, and the and the book is the novel is full of epigraphs. You know, every, every chapter quotes a a, a poem. Um, so he's definitely yes. pulling, you know, pulling on all this. Yes. And, but it, it, it's such an interesting, you know, again, he's making the muse literal. It's literally this monster, actually, race of monsters. There's more than one, right? It's not just one, um, and. I mean, it's it's fascinating because I mean, I think the Romantics were thinking about this too, right? But but at, at the time period when when Romanticism was so in vogue, and and I know more about the Germans than the English, but but the the notion that you know, the, I think the notion of genius was really important, right? Because they were yes. so interested in individuality. Yes, that, you know that that the individual, the unique creative individual, is, is what that really is. It's it's the unique coming together of of the infinite. You know, it's it's a it's a unique and precious manifestation of the infinite. I mean, yes. That's the language that especially the German Romantics used. Um, and and well, and, and I think that's where you get Mont Blanc and the Sublime and all of that. That is right. The 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 um, apprehension of that. Yeah. In an in, in individual, absolutely. The intuition of the infinite. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Because Coleridge <laughs> is reading the Germans and then bringing oh, he, the absolutely. And all that. And, and thieving from them, yes. Right. right. <laughs> um, but I mean, but that idea that somehow genius, like genius is is brilliant creative individ individuality is somehow, um, you know, amazing, but also a little bit scary and, and, and odd and it needs an explanation, you know, or, or, or like, so what, what is the origin of it? I mean, where does this actually come from? And so the, I think the tendency to say, well, it's supernatural is, you know, maybe the one thing that these two very different takes on this whole set of ideas that have in common that, you know, Powers is giving a literal supernatural, supernatural explanation, but the, you know, some of the, the these poets, the Lamia is, is, is perhaps more, 
you know, playing with the metaphor. I was going to say, so, so yes, um, I, Keats is suggesting it's supernatural, I suppose, but I think you have to think of about what metaphor does. Metaphor really gives us a way to put something in words that is inexpressible, right? It's something that you really cannot articulate. And therefore you rely on metaphor, which is the juxtaposition of things that don't go together because in that juxtaposition, you see something that you can't state, right? And so, so yeah, sure, Keats is saying it's supernatural, but I don't think, I think um, he's actually using that metaphor in order to express something. It feels like it comes from the su supernatural, but it's, it's here in this world when it's alive in a human being, right? right. I don't yeah. know. Not a monster, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree right. that it can be dangerous, but I think as soon as, I mean, poor Shelley, look where it led him, right? right, right. But, 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 but when you actually put, bring a monster in, a literal monster that, that all these people see, and, and then and they all see it, you know, they're all in the same room, and there they are, they see the monster. When yeah. you start having that happen, then all of a sudden, it's not inside the human being anymore, right? It's not the human being's creative energy anymore. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of the, of the, of the word fey, the, ah. the adjective fey, which, which is, which, which, you know, is, is, is essentially the adjectival form of fairy. Right. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I would argue, unfortunately, at least in our world, you know, the concept of fairy has been degraded and, and, and simplified and, and I can't even think of the right word. It, it's been made childlike in a, in a, in a bad way. You know, it's, it's been, you know, you think about Tinkerbell and Disneyfication of things. And, oh, yes. But if you, but if you try to think about the word, it actually comes from the old English word for faded. So it's, it's a, it's a word that's, that's weighty with, with significance because this idea of fate of, um, you know, it holds, it holds a lot. It's a, it's a weighty word. Yeah. And, and and it, it, you know, the idea, if you look up the words, I mean, sort of fey is something that's dangerous, um, you know, but, but dangerous because, because it's so potent with meaning. So, so um, it's almost like too much existence or something. And, 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 and so I think that's probably what, what, you know, Keats is, is trying to get at, right. Is, is, is the, uh, the muses are are a bit fey, you, you, you know. I mean, the thing, the thing about poetic genius is is while it's really great that you can do this, you don't you you don't really control it, right? It comes to you or it doesn't, and and there's something mysterious and fey about it. And I think I think probably what um, and and then the whole concept of fairy and elves and all that, if you get away from the sort of horrible modern understandings of that and and look at more, you know, it, it, it's this idea of an alternate much richer, deeper world that exists at the same time and place as, or not the same time, but the same place as ours. And that's, yes, sometimes you know, that's, a, that's exactly where Lamia starts. Upon a time before the right. fairy broods drove nymph and satyr from the prosperous woods. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's, it, you know, it, it's this, it's this, it's this place that's timeless out of sync with ours chronologically, but that sometimes humans can find and, 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 and that that is hey, it's dangerous and scary, but also potent and meaningful. And 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 I, so I think that you know that's really interesting. Um, I mean, it's very that's very powerful in some some parts of Tolkien. It's 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 powerfully done in, in some writings. And then of course, again, we we've sort of degraded the idea. But it seems like to me that that that's part of what 
you know, yeah, what Keats is, is playing with. And I think maybe the most interesting part of that, that one, there's lots of interesting things going on here, but, but maybe the part of this is that's most interesting is he's writing at a time when, you know, natural philosophy is becoming science. And it isn't too much later than this, you know, a few more decades go by when you start to really get science as a reductionistic approach to understanding the world, which I don't think it was quite yet, but it was coming. And in other words, that, that science would unweave the rainbow, you know, um, uh, and I can't remember where that quote actually comes from, but. Um, unweaving the rainbow? Yeah, it, that's. I think it's a reference to Lamia somewhere. It's in one of the poems, I think. But, you know, the, but the, the notion that, you know, early natural philosophy was also a thing of wonder, but very quickly it becomes something that is reductionistic. It's a way we understand the world by reducing it down to its component parts. And when you reduce things down to their component parts, of course, you lose the wholeness, you lose the, the magic, as it were, of, of and, um, you know, that I think is a real thing. That's something for us to think about today. Wait, I must quote from Keats here. <laughs> I must. Philosophy will clip an angel's wing, wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and nomad mine, unweave a rainbow as erstwhile made the tender person's Lamia melt into a shade. Yep. Unweave the rainbow, the yep. Lamia disappears and... Yep. That's yep. it. And, 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 you know, and I, I don't think it's, you know, it's sort of ironically humorous, but not really that like Richard Dawkins, you know, who is one of the world's great reductionists, uh, you know, <laughs> actually titles one of his, uh, you know, he, he, one of his books is, a, is about unweaving the rainbow. I mean, it, it, he talks, you know, he's like, look, evolution explains everything, you know, and, 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 and I, you know, I'm not, I, I certainly. So, so, so hold on one second here. We might need to revisit this in another podcast because I, I sure. think that, <laughs> I think that that's a big oversimplification, but um, because, because I think Dawkins is also looking at the wonder. I oh. think there's wonder in Dawkins. Okay. Oh, that's that's well, all I'll no say question. right here. Yes, but no but, but we, we, we got to read the book before we can talk about yeah, it. No, so. no question. No, there, yeah, there, yeah, there, yeah. but, but he is but, certainly a reductionist and, and, and yes. that's, and that is, um, you know, I think that's what that that's that fear. And and I think this is where, you know, sort of being unhappy about what Powers is doing, I think, comes in. Because when you make this literal, you lose all of that, I think. I mean, it just... You lose all of what? You lose... All of that business about... Um, uh, that the notion of the muse, that, you know, the, the idea that we need to be connected to this creative genius, um, and and if we if we approach the the entire world scientifically, then we're going to lose we're going to lose that we're going to we're going to unweave the mystery we're going to you know destroy what is fey, and that um, we need to be connected to this mystery because that's what gives our life meaning. Yes or yeah. no? Yeah, I mean that's where meaning is. Yes, uh, that's where meaning is. And to me, that's that that is I think we've just both come to the same place here, because that's what we lose in the powers book. Yeah, life, human life becomes meaningless because he makes our muse meaningless. He makes that creative genius, that special place meaningless. Yeah. And so it's, it's so it becomes sort of just a, just a horror story. And, and I think this is often something I mean, I have the same criticism of, of Dawkins, actually. Um, <laughs> But I think this is something that, that <laughs> but that you know, postmodern people often do, and I think you know, is that we have, to the extent that we are postmodern, we are we, we're living in a world without any 
framework. I mean, we've, 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 we've picked apart the framework. And, and so, but yet at the same time, we keep asserting that there's a meaning or a purpose. I mean, Dawkins does this in that very book. I mean, he, you know, he, um, there, there's a value to creativity, which means leads you to wonder, well, why? What's the point if there is no, there is no framework of meaning? Again, subject for another, another time. Um, yeah. But I think that's probably why, um, you know, the novel ends up being sort of unsatisfactory because it be simply becomes a, a horror story. Um, or at least that's how it feels. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, footnote, I absolutely, uh, you know, um, quote unquote, believe in science and evolution. And I'm just saying. One has to say that nowadays. Well, one does, yes. One does, yes. But it, but it, but it raises dilemmas, you know, for us. And I think that's the point. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Alfred, shall we leave it there? Well, I guess so. I mean, it was sort of fun, um, you know. Uh, it's, it's made me think about, okay, so I've read most of Tim Powers' books, um, not all of them, but most of them. And, and I used to think- this Which I cannot fun. say for myself. Right, right, right. I used to think this was my favorite ones. I have to, I have to, I have to rethink it now. Because it was really interesting to, because I'd never done that before. I mean, I've, I've read things, but I, I've, I've not gone back and really considered the source material. Yeah. And, and by the way, I haven't read much Keats in my life and especially not recently. So I'm sort of interested in, in returning to Keats as well. And we on our podcast series will have to return to these same questions, maybe in some different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. And all this is to say, you know, all this is not to say, I mean, I, I think Powers has a real gift. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he it, it's impressive what he, what he does. Um, yes. But again, Absolutely. the more you dig into, to, especially the you know when it's something like this, which is is literary, um, you know, it's it's easy to find um, issues. <laughs> issues, that's a real twenty first century word for us. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, until next time, I guess. Yes. Don't forget to visit thedelia.net, where you can follow our podcast and see what's new with our many projects. And look for Beyond the Labyrinth anywhere you listen to podcasts so you can join us next time when we'll beagle about Monty Python's Holy Grail and its analog, Lamort Darthur.